0: Citizen reporter number 372, 26th of March, 2011.
1: We know the air is unfit to breathe and our food is unfit to eat. sit watching our TVs while some local newscaster tells us that today we had 15 homicides and 63 violent crimes, as if that's the way it's supposed to be. We know things are bad, worse than bad.
0: I think our uh, change is coming very close because we believe in a democratic change, whereby it's not going to be a coup, it's not, there's not going to be war, it's going to be through the ballot. I'm speaking with Natasha Ezro, head of the International Development Program at the University of Essex. She's also the co-author of the book "The Politics of Dictatorship," and she joins us today from the u k. Good afternoon, Natasha Good afternoon. So I'm sure a lot of people, at least in your in your conversations, your daily conversations, maybe some interviews, are asking you about the topic of dictators because we we seem to be in the year of dictators being challenged, if not uh, being removed. Um, yeah. yeah, it's
1: been. Uh <laughs> It's definitely been a time where a lot of changes have taken place because we've always thought that these dictatorships in the Middle East were incredibly stable, that nothing was going to happen, and no one would have predicted uh, all the changes that have been taking place.
0: Yeah, and and I, I notice, I do it too, everybody kind of scrambles now to know everything we can know. I mean, my areas that I never knew about were Bahrain, Yemen, all of a sudden I'm reading about Saleh, I never knew anything about him. Um... you've mentioned in in your writing that dictatorships actually aren't very well studied or, or investigated. No,
1: they're not, because they're sort of all lumped together into one category. And because of that, we don't really understand all the nuances and all the differences that exist between dictatorships, that they are different types, and that these different types are distinct in that the, the way that they exit, their mode of exit, it differs, their type of foreign policy tends to differ, their economic performance, their level of corruption. So there's all kinds of things that we can learn about them um, through categorizing them a little bit better.
0: And so some of the categories I've seen you use, uh, the personal or personalist Personalist, um, correct. Mil- militarist, I mean, explain a little bit. Are there, th- how many categories?
1: Well, basically, th- this is used from a data set by Barbara Gettys, who's at UCLA. She categorized dictatorships based on personalist, uh, whether or not one dictator holds all the power and all of the um, you know all the concentration of power is in his hands whether the military is ruling so it's being run by like a military junta like in argentina in the past whether it's a single party ruling like china today uh, or whether it's a hybrid of these and then other uh, types are um, a monarchy as well which you have um, mainly in the middle east where a ruling family is in charge and that's pretty much how we differentiate them
0: yeah if if we look at the examples I'll leave. Bahrain out because that's some kind of a monarchy as I understand it. you can correct me later but um, let's look at you know right now it's Qaddafi uh, not so long ago it was all about Mubarak and Ben Ali are these three uh, can they be put in the same category
1: Uh not Completely. Basically, Egypt was different because it was considered a regime where the military and a single party and a dictator shared power. So because the military was so powerful, we see that this changed the mode of exit quite a bit. And the military still has a lot of power even today. Hmm. So in the case of Egypt, uh, it was... You know, loyal to Mubarak to an extent, but it didn't want to do anything to disrupt its own legitimacy and its own, uh, economic interest because it owns about 50% of the manufacturing capacity. The military. It's a, it's a huge business. Yeah, it's a huge business. Yeah. So it, it couldn't do anything to disrupt this legitimacy by, say, killing everybody who was protesting. And in the end, it didn't kill anybody. It was really more police forces who, who got involved in that way. Um, and they sort of stood on the, on the outskirts watching behind the scenes, making sure that public order was maintained and that the view of um, the military from the public didn't change too much. And they're still ruling behind the scenes and it's gonna be very, very difficult to get the military out of uh, the future rule because they have so much power. Whereas in the case of Ben Ali, uh, when he took over, he sought to personalize the regime and to concentrate more and more power into his hands. Okay. speaking of Tunisia. He hadn't quite done that to the extent that Gaddafi had done. And so there therein lies the difference. And so by the time that the revolution took place, he was in the process of doing it, trying to weaken the military. The military was by no means uh, loyal to him, but he hadn't developed the personal security forces that Gaddafi had developed. And so as a result, he had to leave, because the military wasn't loyal to him, and he didn't really have much security um, to protect him. He had built sort of a a castle far away, a palace far away to protect him from people, but that wasn't going to be quite enough. In Gaddafi's case, he's been in power since 1969, and he's had many, many years of making sure the military has been inept and incompetent and weak, and then strengthening his own personal security guards. Hmm. And so it's those people, along with um, foreign mercenaries, that have been um, part of this battle against the rebels. The actual military resigned and left. They have no reason to be loyal to him.
0: Hmm. So, Gaddafi not a militarist, although now we watch a, a, a military battle going on.
1: No, he's a personalist dictatorship who's just sort of hired out some people to um, <clears throat> to fight against these rebels. But mm-hmm. the actual military isn't involved, it's just this, these paramilitary groups, personal security forces, personal bodyguards, and mainly mercenaries from like Chad and Niger.
0: Yeah, you know, I, I don't know how deeply you've gone into looking at, like, for example, psychological aspects of these people. I'm, I'm you know, I think it's clear that it's necessary to understand why they do what they do. Uh, when I look at what's going on, you just mentioned Gaddafi, Late '60s came to power. It seems like their heyday was the '70s, depending on specifically who we're talking about. But in North Africa, the uh, heyday was the '70s, maybe the '80s, and it seems like they've woken up in an era now, and and. I think they're confused. Like, I sometimes wonder if they're not confused. Like, Mubarak, you know, not understanding what's going on outside. Um, I mean, is it that the world has changed, and they haven't, and they don't quite get it?
1: Well, I think you'd see that more in the case of Gaddafi, because he's surrounded by yes-men, by sycophants, and not really by any kind of experts. In fact, he shuns all expertise. So, he's only surrounded by people that are going to tell him what he wants to hear, so he has really no accurate information. In Mubarak's case... He was a little bit out of touch, but not quite as bad, and you see that the mode of exit was easier. It wasn't quite as protracted. In fact, I thought it might be a little bit longer because I thought the military might support him for a little bit longer, but in the end, you know, he was pretty pragmatic about it. Whereas Qaddafi's case, it, it, as a personalist dictatorship, similar to Saddam Hussein, they hold on to power until the very end. I mean, it's a real brutal exit for them. They usually die in office in some way um, because they're incapable of seeing what they're doing. And you can see this in interviews with both Saddam Hussein and Gaddafi, just years and years of being supported uh, blindly by these, um, you know, loyal sycophants means that he's, he's living in a delusional world. He doesn't have the information that he would need to make pragmatic decisions. And based on these interviews, he appears to be almost crazy.
0: Yeah. Uh, and, and I've been reading about... Um well, well, actually, the theme of greed uh, is underlying sort of uh, uh, the, the magazine that I'm writing for. And I was trying to look at, well, you know, what is greed? That kind of requires some some definition. And, and then looking at who's in charge in these nations that are now experiencing these protests. You know, Some leaders seem desperate, as you just mentioned, to the point that they would die rather than leave office. Uh, and while others, when they see the writing on the wall, leave. And I right. sometimes wonder, like, what, you know... Why? Why is there a difference between them? Like, what, what happens in yeah, life? Well, the main life?
1: difference is uh, the, the types of dictators. The personalist type of dictator can see no life after being in office. They can't see any life in exile. The only thing they can see is them being in power. And this has a lot to do with the fact that you know the narcissistic parts of their personality have been cultivated by these yes men for many, many years. Mm-hmm. And so, for that reason, they just can't leave. They cling to power to the very end. Someone who's a little bit more pragmatic. Has, it is so, probably because they've had checks on their power for so many years. Like, the you know, the military shared power with uh, Mubarak for many years. Mm. So... It wasn't as if he was living completely in this delusional world where he's, you know, told that basically he's a king, he's a messianic figure that everybody is adoring and that's coming from the heavens and, and things of that nature. He mm. He's more um, living in the real world. He's more pragmatic, and so he knew that the writing was on the wall, and he pretty much had no choice. Mm. And so we see that... Um, you know, I think the Saleh case is also going to be interesting He's in, in Yemen. He's promising to leave, but his dictatorship is a little bit more like the Qaddafi case. Uh, I just think he hasn't personalized power to the same extent. Yeah. And because he hasn't quite done that yet, he knows, you know, that he may have no choice.
0: Hmm. And I, I remember reading over the last even 10 years almost, um, interviews with Qaddafi where, he spoke a lot about legacy. I sometimes wondered if he wasn't, you know, close to death's door as well, um, yeah. because because he was all worried about how he would be remembered. And and then you know the, he creates the African Union. Again, he talks about legacy when he does this, and and always points him to himself as a not a not a president anymore, but some kind of a spiritual guide.
1: Right. Uh, yeah. He he sees himself as more than just the leader of Libya. He is fused himself with the state so he doesn't see any life for libya with him not in it Mm. and this these kinds of ideas have been fueled by the support of his elite support group um, which are telling him that you know he's basically like a godlike figure so he's concerned with his legacy and in no way can he just sort of step down from power i mean this is a completely undignified thing for someone of his stature in his mind to do
0: One thing I wanted to also look at was, I mean, I'm watching Syria now, and... You know, I, I, Assad is a, is a strange case for me. I don't know. Again, another case where I'm scrambling to to learn more about him. Although I've seen him appear in interviews for for a very long time and, and say some things. Um, I've noticed Saudi Arabia making some concessions, uh, some of the Emirates as well, even before any protests, saying, you know, we'll we'll make these benefits available to the you know regular people. We'll we'll give a little bit more money for different things. Um, what is the likelihood that, that this is going to be enough for people on the streets? I mean, it's, what are the chances that in a, well, Saudi Arabia, perhaps, but any of the Emirates, where a regime says, we'll give you this, uh, citizens, uh, so that you don't rise up, what are the chances that these kind of reforms or, or, or gifts or whatever you want to call them, are enough so that these countries don't don't you know, revolt outright?
1: Well, there'll be some protests going on in the Gulf states, but for the most part, the Gulf states should be very, very stable. And the reason is because, you know, due to oil wealth and just also due to the fact that it's a ruling family, so they have traditional types of legitimacy and not sort of charismatic. Um, they have the money to suppress. They have the money to co-opt, and they have the money to do whatever they need to to keep everybody happy. And they've been doing it this way for many, many years. They have a lot more money and much smaller populations than the case of Egypt, which is very urban, tons of poverty, tons of unemployment, tons of inflation, all kinds of problems. Um, so I don't see much happening. I think there'll be some cosmetic changes that may take place, some defensive democratization on a very, very small scale. All of these Gulf monarchies have employed consultative councils and pseudo-democratic parliaments that that have very little meaning. Saudi Arabia did it back in 1992 with the creation of the Shura Council, Mm -hmm. and it allowed a forum for people to voice their grievances, um, but I don't see them doing really much. And I I also would add that the Syrian case as well, I mean, they are very, very well-prepared for what's taking place they have a very strong security apparatus and in addition they don't really care what the west thinks so they're free to basically kill people if they need to
0: right but at some point i mean if if more you know i think there's got to be some breaking point where they can't kill this many people because their own population will go this is unacceptable whoever's left
1: Right. But they it hasn't reached that tipping point yet. And it's hard to coordinate in a country where, you know, you can't even get on the Internet. So, you know, the Internet played a bigger role in Egypt in the coordination taking place. But there is no Internet access to the same extent in Syria. I mean, you can't get on hardly any sites over there. Mm.
0: Um, one thing that's, that's very hard to to see, especially if we're not on the inside right now, is the what happens next uh, story, especially in the case of, of where dictators or autocrats have left or been removed. Uh, I'm watching Egypt. I'm trying to understand what they're doing in the whole process. Um, I've read about it in, in some of your own texts about how movements are able to or not able to, following the removal of a dictator, uh, implement a, a new Uh, government and and whether it's one that well basically what are the chances now that that they're able to implement a a democracy as opposed to the return of some kind of dictatorship
1: Um, I think it's What most likely is going to happen is they're going to implement something that looks like a democracy, but that's very flawed, where you have very high levels of military power and involvement sort of dictating some things behind the scenes, where you don't have really fully institutionalized political parties that are based on ideology. We have a lot of personalism where votes are sort of tied to some kind of personal leader uh, and we have a, a, quite a bit of chaos because the reason for the revolt had a lot to do with the corruption and the economic mismanagement. In the case of Egypt, that's not going to go away anytime soon. So I think it's going to be a very tough transition for them. I think Tunisia has a much better chance because, at least in the past, they were, before Ben Ali came to power, they were one of the most democratic countries in the Middle East. Yeah. And he just led a complete reversal. But there was experience with it, whereas Egypt has had not really much any experience with democracy, yeah. not much experience with political parties, a legislature that actually works, a functioning bureaucracy, all these things have been not functioning for so many years that to change it overnight is pretty difficult.
0: Mm-hmm. A Tunisian friend said to me recently, yeah, we're lucky we don't have resources. <laughs>
1: that helps, right. Yeah. That, that has to do with theories on uh, the role of oil uh, basically leading to economic mismanagement and where you can pretty much pay off the people to be quiet. and mm-hmm. And in Egypt's case, though they didn't have oil, they had a lot of funding from the U.S. and a lot of tourism receipts. Um, And they didn't really have to develop their own, you know, capabilities. Yeah. because of that.
0: I wanted to make sure for anyone that does want to read uh, the book or any of your work, um, first of all, I'll mention the title and the publisher. It's The Politics of Dictatorship, uh, Institutions and Outcomes in Authoritarian Regimes. And right, and then there's a,
1: there's a second book also that's more user friendly. That book is for academics, and the book for uh, students and just regular people who are interested in politics is called Dictators and Dictatorships. They're okay. both out in April.
0: Yeah, and uh, Okay, and I can provide a link on the show notes that accompany this post um, so Natasha, Ezra thanks so much for, uh, for taking the time today and uh, well we'll hear from you in the, in the future.
1: My pleasure have a good afternoon Are the silence in my head a blaze ruler of my desires and even though you're cold as ice you stir up fear with fire
0: the devils on my mind and push me down the hill. Go wake the devils on my mind and push me down the hill.